You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. Our verses today are Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. When is a moment in your life that you remember time slowing down to a crawl? When we were in the hospital waiting for my son Henry to make his entrance, I couldn't tell you if it was a few hours or a few years because time was just creeping by. During the hour that I was waiting for our wedding to begin, it felt like I was sitting there forever. When was a moment like that for you? Maybe it was a wedding. Maybe it was a birth. Maybe it was waiting for the doctor to call with test results. Maybe it was sitting in your car before a job interview. Maybe it was holding your loved one's hand as they took their final breath. There are moments that are so pregnant with meaning that time seems to just barely tick by. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, we are entering into such a time Mark has 16 chapters, and so far we have moved at breakneck speed through Jesus' ministry. In fact, one of Mark's favorite words is the Greek word euthus, which means immediately. Mark has been telling us that Jesus went here, and Jesus healed this person, and Jesus did that, and then he did that. <coughs> but now, here at the beginning of Mark 11, time slows down because the rest of the Gospel of Mark is a day-by-day account of the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. Mark slows the telling of his story because he does not want us to speed past any detail. It's that important. 
So for the next few weeks leading us to Easter, we are going to continue to journey with Mark through these final seven days. We're going to take this last week and stretch it out as we travel with Jesus toward a table, toward a cross, and toward a tomb. Because we are now in the church season of Lent. Lent is a season that is still relatively new for me. In the Baptist church that I grew up in, you just sort of showed up one Sunday in spring and, whoa, it's Easter. There wasn't very much preparation for Easter. And I think because of that, Easter for many of us has has always felt like a lesser holiday. It's been eclipsed by Christmas. But the truth is, is that that is very bad theology. Easter is what all of this is about, friends. And something that important, something that significant, we should not enter into lightly. Sometimes Baptists like me can get uncomfortable with things like Lent because we've been taught to be suspect of anything that feels too liturgical. Well, with all due respect, we need to get over ourselves sometimes. Because Lent is a 40-day season of preparation that has been practiced by Christians since the year 330. That's almost 1,700 years. So maybe when when we turn our noses up at such things, we're getting a little big for our britches. Culturally, people say things at Lent like, Oh, I'm giving up coffee for Lent, or, or I'm giving up chocolate for Lent, and... Well, my response is that any religious practice that asks me to give up either coffee or chocolate is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Lent is not about giving up a minor inconvenience. Now, that may be part of your Lenten journey, but only if it's in service to a greater purpose, because the purpose of Lent is about spending these next few weeks preparing our hearts and our minds We are on the road to the cross and to the empty tomb with Jesus. And as we walk through this journey, Lent is our time to examine our hearts before we get to Easter. So during this season, as we explore these final days together, I invite you to ask yourself honestly, am I prepared to follow Jesus? Am I prepared to follow Jesus in the midst of the darkness of Good Friday? Am I prepared to follow Jesus in the blinding light of Easter Sunday? So we are going to allow time to stretch. We're going to prepare our hearts to meet both the dark and the light of this last week. And we begin with Sunday. Jesus and his disciples have been on the way to Jerusalem for some time now. When they get to a little town called Bethany, they're just a few miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus gives them some odd instructions. He sends two of the disciples ahead and says, Go on ahead of us, and in the village you'll see a colt. Untie it from its post and bring it to me. And if anybody stops you and asks, What are you doing? Then you just say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back. Would that work for you? Let's say you go out to the parking lot and somebody was getting in your car. And what if they said, well, the Lord needs it and I'll send it back shortly. I don't think that would work for me. But it works here. Now, why these instructions? Did Jesus somehow arrange this exchange ahead of time? Yeah, maybe. 
Is this maybe an example of his divinity at play? I think so. But whatever the circumstances, what we are meant to understand is what Jesus is doing here and what he is about to do and what he is on the road to do. All that he does here is on purpose and with intentionality. And as we begin this week, you have to be willing to engage with the context that this final week takes place. So here's what you need to know about this story. Jesus's was not the only triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day. Mark tells us that this story takes place at the beginning of the Passover festival. Now that's an important detail. Because during Passover, the population of the city of Jerusalem would swell. The normal population of Jerusalem was about 40,000 people, but during Passover, people would flock to the city and to the temple. So the city would overnight go from 40,000 to about 250,000 people. Now, this amount of people tended to make the Roman Empire a little nervous. In fact, over a century before the time of Jesus, there was a revolt amongst the Jewish people. It was led by a family called the Maccabees, and ever since then, the Romans looked on Jerusalem with nervousness and anxiety because they knew the region was still a powder keg. There was a governor who was appointed by the Roman government to keep his eye on the Jewish people. His name, and you know it well, was Pontius Pilate. Pilate did not really like Jerusalem. In fact, he avoided the city mostly. His palace was in Caesarea Philippi, to the west of Jerusalem. There was only one time a year when Pilate would go to the city of Jerusalem, and that was Passover. And when Pilate would come to Jerusalem, I'm sure that in the back of his mind was this enormous crowd of a quarter of a million people who all knew the story of the Maccabean Revolt. So entering the city of Jerusalem from the west, Pilate would triumphantly enter into Jerusalem the city. Imagine this with me. You're in your house doing last-minute cleaning and cooking before your family comes over to start the Passover festival in Jerusalem. And then you hear a hubbub outside the street. You wipe off your hands and, and go to stand in the doorway to watch the procession. You see intimidating cavalry on armored horses, hundreds of foot soldiers in leather armor, helmets, swords, spears, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles. The sun glints on the silver and the gold. What do you hear? Why, you hear the sound of marching feet, the creaking of the leather, the clinking of the bridles, the beating of the drums of the Roman army. And as the procession passes, it kicks up the dust on the street. The dust blows into your face and into the face of your neighbors. The dust seems to almost slap you in the face and command you that you remember that in the midst of your people's little celebration of being liberated from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years ago, don't you forget that Big Brother is watching and you better keep in line. You look down the street and you see that all of your neighbors are watching Pilate's procession too. On their faces you see mixtures of curiosity, awe, resentment, vengeance, and anger. Now Jesus 
knows that this happens. Jesus knows that Pilate enters like this. He's been to Jerusalem during Passover his whole life. He's watched the Roman government officials march into the city to remind the people of their place. So, what does he do? Why, he decides to make his own entry into Jerusalem. While Pilate is coming from the west, Jesus enters the city from the east. What Jesus is doing here in this triumphal entry is street theater. It's something that the prophets in the Old Testament specialized in. In Jeremiah 27, to demonstrate the oppression of the people, the prophet Jeremiah walks around the city with an ox yoke strapped to him. In Ezekiel chapter 4, to show the exile of the people, the prophet Ezekiel lays on his left side for 390 days and on his right side for 40 days. In Isaiah chapter 20, the prophet Isaiah demonstrates the brazen conquest of the people by preaching naked for three years. Street theater was a way to prophetically teach the people about what God really wants them to be doing. There's a documentary that came out in the year 2007 called, What Would Jesus Buy? It's about a man who calls himself Reverend Billy. He decks himself out in fine suits with large coiffed hair, and he's followed by a singing choir in robes called the Stop Shopping Choir. What they do is that every Black Friday, they go to some of the largest malls and shopping centers in the country, and they sing songs about the dangers of consumerism. Then Reverend Billy will preach these emotional and energetic sermons right there in the food court. He calls Black Friday the shop Copalypse, and he will go to the cash registers and perform exorcisms to remove the demons from those cash registers. It's kind of funny, but it's also kind of uncomfortable. It's not really meant to just entertain, it's meant to make us think, wait, what would Jesus buy? Do I really need this extra thing? And that's what street theater is. It's political guerrilla tactics to make a larger point. That is what Jesus is doing on this Sunday of his last week as he enters Jerusalem. Jesus is marching into Jerusalem on the same day that Pilate is marching into the city because Jesus wants to make a distinction between what Pilate's parade is about and what Jesus' parade is about. The triumphal entry is a counter-procession. Friends, this is Occupy Jerusalem. And these actions are right in line with what the Hebrew Bible tells us the Messiah will do. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9, 9-10 puts it this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem! Lo, your king comes to you! Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey." He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
Did you hear what Jer- what Zechariah said there? It's not just about the Messiah entering and, and being humble and riding on a donkey. It is. But it's also about how this king will banish war and the weapons of war from the land. Zechariah mentions how the chariot, the war horses, and the bows will be removed from the land. Maybe kind of like the chariot and the war horses and the bows that Pilate brings with him. Because this king that Zechariah envisions will bring about a kingdom of peace. The entry of Pilate into the city embodied the power and the glory and the violence of the empire that ruled the world. But Jesus' entry was triumphant in another way. Because it embodied a different vision for the world, the kingdom of God. Now the people recognize that Jesus is doing something very snarky here. So they rush out to the streets to see him pass by. And I I like to imagine that Jesus timed his entry to directly compete with Pilate's entry into the city. I like to imagine Pilate seated on his armored white stallion and thinking, Wait, wasn't the crowd bigger last year? The people flocked to see Jesus. They lay down their cloaks, they wave palm branches, and they shout, Hosanna! Which means, save us! And it shows that the people are excited by the street theater, but they still don't seem to get it. Because they still think that Jesus is riding into town to topple their foreign oppressors. The people think that Jesus is there to save them from the Romans, when in reality, Jesus is there to save them from themselves. Jesus is there to save them from their sin. And we still need that. We still need that as we explore this last week of Jesus' life. Now, sometimes I think that we love the vagueness of the phrase that Jesus saves us from our sins. The more broad and vague we can keep that, then we don't have to wrestle with any specific sins in our lives. Well, as I look at the crowd, and as I even look at who we are today, I can see three specific kinds of sins that the people needed saving from and that we still need saving from. Number one, we must be saved from a cheap faith. Throughout all of the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that Jesus is not looking for disciples who are just fair-weather friends. He is looking for people who are willing to follow him into Jerusalem, who are willing to follow him to the darkness and the pain that will accompany Good Friday. And we're sometimes guilty of making faith into a kind of therapeutic salve that helps us to live our best life now. But true discipleship is about following Jesus even when it is difficult and dangerous and senseless. And we need to remind ourselves of what we have heard Jesus say in Mark 8.34. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The people in this crowd were hoping for someone to swoop in and make their lives easier, and instead Jesus comes in to give them life that is really life, but only through true discipleship, not through cheap grace. Number two, we must be saved from a petty nationalism. Jesus does not come to fulfill anyone's political agenda. 
And the crowd that met him that day, they were looking for a Messiah to fulfill their political agenda. Yet in our day, still then, still now, people of all partisan stripes love to drape their perspectives in the flag and assume that Jesus not only endorses their candidates or their slogans or their policies, but is at work through them to accomplish their political goals. Now, there's nothing wrong with patriotism. We are so blessed to be in a country with freedoms. But if you want a king who exists to fulfill your political goals, look to the West to Pontius Pilate. Because that's exactly the kind of ruler and leader that Pilate was. But if you want to follow Jesus, you have to remember that he enters Jerusalem from the east, and he enters on this day as the king of the entire world, and not just your people. And this king, Jesus, journeys to the cross to offer his life as a sacrifice for all people. And his people will not be confined to any one nation, and his sacrificial love extends far beyond all races, all countries, all borders. And we desperately need to be saved from a petty nationalism that says otherwise. Number three, we need to be saved from false glory. We know that we need to be disciples who follow Jesus, but I think if we're being perfectly honest, sometimes we imagine ourselves as having a grand role in the story. But we need to be reminded how our passage for today began. Will Willimon says that this passage begins with two disciples being assigned to donkey detail. Can you imagine being those two disciples? Jesus comes to them and says, Fellas, I I got a real important job for you. And they think, well, finally, we've been waiting for this, we've been waiting three years for this revolution to start. We're ready, Jesus. Just tell us what you want us to do. And then Jesus tells them that they're being asked to go get the animal he will ride in on. Seriously? That's it? I thought we were headed for some fame and glory, and you want us to go talk to a man about a cult? Really? It's like that sometimes, isn't it? We wonder, what am I called to do for the kingdom of God? And maybe we sometimes imagine that we're called to preach on hard biblical truths or or journey to an isolated region overseas to spread the gospel. But what if we too are sometimes assigned to be the disciples on donkey detail? Because sometimes we disciples are called to the task that we think might be mundane or simple. When a family from our church is welcoming a new baby, we bake a casserole and take it over to them. We read the church prayer list and and simply text or call someone on that list to just say, I'm praying for you. We make sure that the limousines are taken care of so that the older saints among us can be present with us for worship. We serve on a committee at our church because we know that some tasks just need to get done. We give up a Saturday morning to go serve at a food pantry so that others can be fed for that week. Is it possible 
that true glory, true triumph, is found not in seeking the large, bombastic things, but in serving in the smaller ways, like securing the donkey that makes all of this possible. Shortly after I became pastor of First Baptist Church, my grandma, my grandma Simmons, passed away. And it was a very stressful time in my life. I was finding my footing as a pastor. I was stressed. I was a jumble of tension. And when she passed away, I, I took it hard. Her death was long and painful from skin cancer. Sandra Dobnikar called me. She's a lady from our church. And uh, when she called me, she said, I made you some cookies that I'd like to bring over to your house. And I said, well, I'm not actually at my house. I'm at my grandparents' house in, in Grassy, Missouri. And she said, okay, well, we'll just drive out there. And Sandra and Robert Dobnikar drove almost an hour to bring me and my family a Tupperware container filled with delicious chocolate chip cookies. And right then and there, I needed that expression of the kingdom of God. To Sandra and Robert, that may have been a small thing, but for me, that was everything. Friends, as we enter into this last week, there are three things we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from a cheap faith. We need to be saved from a petty nationalism. And we need to be saved from a false glory. Because the purpose of Lent is to prepare our hearts and our minds to journey with Jesus so that our lives would glorify God above all others. Amen.